You're listening to the podcast of Antioch East Baptist Church in Magnolia, Arkansas. This is Pastor Ron Owen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any comments or inquiries, you can send those to us at aebc123 at me.com. Now, I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke in chapter 14. Now, Jesus um, has already said in chapter 14 some powerful things around the table. He's given us four table experiences, interestingly. And um, then we come to a passage in verse 25 to the end of the chapter, which I want to try to enlighten us about the best I can, all right? So we're going to look at some, some of the most straightforward, convicting words that Jesus ever said. Now, before we do this, I would like to just talk heart to heart with you about something that is, is not coming right from this text, but it will apply to this text, all right? For some time, I have, I have uh, worked on the subject of the word believe. What I mean is, I found it somewhat confusing sometimes. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Now, I know I am a believer, but what does it mean to believe in Christ? Way back when I was in seminary many years ago, I read through the book of John, and I asked myself, what is the gospel invitation? And I found that in this book that was written for the purpose of evangelism, the gospel of John, that in this book, 96 times it mentioned the word believe. Never said anything about inviting Jesus into your heart, regardless of what some people might say in chapter 1. That's misunderstood. It said believe over and over again. And I thought, well... I was trying to think, what does believe? How, how can I articulate? What does it mean to believe in Christ? Now, I had heard things, but I, I really wanted to know myself. What does that actually mean? And I went around to seminary students, and I asked them, I said, what does it mean to believe in Christ? And I got varied answers, honestly, varied answers from, from these seminary students. And through my life, I have been searching and talking and thinking about this critical issue. Now, I know you think everybody ought to have all these things down, but this is a vast concept, a really deep concept, and I, I wanted to get it as right as I possibly could. And um, I've discovered a few things. Here, here was my dilemma. My dilemma is that when people are told to come to Christ in the Bible, on some occasions, it appears that the emphasis is on doing nothing but resting entirely on the finished work of Christ. Do you believe that's true? I, I believe that's true. I believe we must do that. Nobody's done for us what needs to be done except Jesus Christ. Yes. If, if he didn't die on the cross, if he wasn't raised again, we have no hope whatsoever. But then on the other hand you have passages like the one we're going to look at tonight where it, for all practical purposes, looks like the way to become a Christian is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Christ, to commit your life to Christ, to take up your cross and follow Him. Do you feel the tension sometimes between those two ideas? You'll read one page about one thing, the next page about something else. 
Now, I believe as I've looked at the word believe in Jesus, that phrase believe in Jesus, in the book of John especially, that those two concepts actually come together in that little phrase. And they come together uh, like this. Sometimes when you mention the name of a person, we'll take a famous character that everybody thinks about, Karl Marx, uh, or maybe a lesser character, uh, Bernie Sanders, okay? <laughs> when, you, when you name that person, you may not know much about Karl Marx. You might not know about his childhood or what kind of person he was, how he, was he melancholy, was he choleric, was he, what kind of person was he? he but what do you know about? You know about his philosophy, right? And the same thing with Bernie Sanders to go back far enough to where I don't get in trouble. <laughs> and the same is true with Jesus Christ. What is happening here when we say we believe in Jesus Christ is that we buy in fully to everything that he stands for. In other words, if I were to say, I'm a believer in Bernie Sanders, what would I mean? Well, I would mean that I have adopted, I'm a fool, that's what you'd say, right? <laughs> I heard that. I'm a socialist, yeah. <laughs> if I said that, I would say that I have, I have bought into fully, given allegiance to everything he stands for, right? I believe his utopian vision for a socialistic society. I believe in the promises that he makes. I believe in the, in the patterns of behavior that we need to have and develop in a country. I believe in the whole thing. If I'm really a believer, if I didn't believe those things and said I was a believer, somebody would say, well, you're just a student of Bernie Sanders. You're not really a believer in Bernie Sanders. If you're a believer in Bernie Sanders, what? You're going you're gonna to follow the tenets of Bernie Sanders. What he sets out and what he projects is the way what you're going to do, right? Well, the same thing is true with Jesus. When we become a believer in Christ, what we're doing is we really believe in Him. We are believing His words. It's amazing how many times that becomes a very clear thing in the Scripture. We're believing what He says, what He promises, what He projects, the great inheritance which He tells us about, which He knows about. We believe in His Father, which He knows, and He lived with him and came to earth uh, from heaven, right? We believe in the things that he said. We also believe that he did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And that was died on the cross and gave himself for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins and stand justified before God. We believe the whole thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is really what it means to believe in Jesus. So when you put those things together like that idea, am I making sense? Yeah. You have to nod your head to see if I'm getting through here. <laughs> if, I, if you put those things together, this idea of being a follower and and commitment, and then at the same time resting completely. They, they both find their nest in the phrase, believe in Jesus Christ. You see that? So there's nothing, in, uh, nothing con, uh, misconstrued in the minds of uh, people who understand that when we, when we uh, look at the different ways Christ calls us to follow and to be a Christian, okay? Now we're going to look at this idea of uh, discipleship and following the Lord tonight. You remember this morning when I told you about 
Jesus' words in John 10, 27. He described a sheep like this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. Well, I want to pick up on that last phrase and expand it a bit further tonight with this great passage in Luke chapter 14, they follow me. Look at this in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, the first impression you get, obviously, is that it is very costly to be a Christian. So sometimes this is missed in our explanation of believing in Jesus. It's very costly to be a Christian. And in this passage, he lays out terms of discipleship, and we'll go through them. Just a few years ago, I was in Bangladesh, and I was working with a group of people called the Maytai, and they had, they were in a, the particular group I was working with was in a, a pretty strong Hindu section of Bangladesh. And they had been persecuted many times. I was meeting with them in a mud and uh, mud manure building. <laughs> they were all sitting on the floor on mats. I sat in one of those ubiquitous, ubiquitous white plastic chairs that I wish I had put stock in years ago because they're every place <laughs> in the world, every place. And I've broken a few of them, by the way. And I was sitting there just teaching them hour after hour, and, and uh, they, were, they were really just lovely people, beautiful people. But there were times in their history that they had been, that, that, that uh, people had barged into that building and, and, and uh, done all kinds of things to these people, and they had suffered considerably over the years. Well, while I was teaching, I was attracted to an older man that I found out later uh, was a pastor. Uh, I thought he was very old. It turns out he was a little younger than me. But he had the sweetest smile on his face. He would listen with the most rapt attention. And I was just, I was just attracted to him. You know, sometimes you just always look at that person. Some of you who are in, in the ministry and teach uh, know what that's like. You just look at that person who's responding really well. And I would look at him, and I just valued his responses so much. He's such a beautiful listener to the things that I was saying. Had a glow on his face. And so I asked the interpreter about this man, and he said, this man has a tragic experience in his life recently. His wife died. 
and he's been pastor actually in, of, of a church and his wife died and he went to the city fathers and he asked them if he could have a plot of land to bury his wife. Now Hindus don't bury, they burn the bodies, right? So they don't bury uh, people and these people were hostile to them and they refused him any land and any place where he could, there wasn't a cemetery or anything like that, and they refused him any place where he could bury his wife. So uh, reluctantly he decided that the only thing he could do was actually on his little plot of land, he had to just dig a, dig a place there, a plot there to bury his wife and he did so, I'm sure with the help of others. But after his wife had been buried, in the middle of the night, some young Hindu, Hindu men came and exhumed the body and laid the body of his wife across the doorstep of his house. So, you know, there's a price to be paid. I mean, I could tell you so many stories. I, I've been around so many people who paid this kind of price, but there's a price to be paid, right? There's a cost involved in being a Christian. What kind of price would you pay? to be a Christian. When would you quit? When would you just say, I'm not going to follow Jesus? I'm not going to be his disciple, right? Now I'm going to read this passage again, and when I read it again, I want you to listen for three terms of discipleship, and I want you to get them firmly in your mind while I'm reading it, okay? So listen very carefully as I read. Let's hear it again. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned just picture what's happening. He turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Those are strong, strong words about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you? Under, under, under those terms, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's see what we can make of these things. First of all, get this setting down in our minds. A large crowd is following him. Jesus at times was quite popular. And so this crowd of people was just following along with him, hoping he'd say something, do some miracle, 
say something profound, put the Pharisees in their place, do something that was attracting them to this, this bold young man. And he stops. And he turns around. Can you picture it? He turns around and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, etc. Do you see what he's doing? So he's, he's, he's interrupting his popularity. Jesus has this narrowing ministry, right? He would gather a crowd and then he would narrow the crowd by the terms of discipleship. He would attract a large number and then they'd all go away except for the few. And that's what he's doing here. So in a very physical way, he's doing it when he turns around and lays out these three terms of discipleship. Let's look at the first one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what this means is, brothers, it means that tonight when you go home, uh, just hug your wife and look her in the eye and say, honey, I hate you. <laughs> just hate you. I can't tell you how much I hate you. <laughs> what does Jesus mean by a statement like this, I hate you? You must hate your wife. You must hate your brothers and sisters. Hate your, even your own life. Obviously, Jesus is using a device, a language device, to point out the absolute singularity about his priority in the life of a real disciple. Okay? He's saying everything else in comparison to this is like hatred. Now, I, years ago, I... I made a really bad mistake when I would talk about prioritizing your life. And I think a lot of people do this. They say, well, you know, when you prioritize your life, you need to think about the important things. And you need to say, well, you're going to put God first. And then you're going to put um, your family second. And then you're going to put your work third. And, and I thought after a while, after a, a, a period of time of doing that silly stuff, idea that I was an absolute, I was just crazy thinking about that, thinking that would work. How am I going to do that? Am I going to give 27% to the family and then up it if we have a meeting, family life conference, we're going to up it to 29% or something? What, what am I going to do? What does that mean? You know, to say God is first and family is second and work is third and church whatever is fourth. What does that mean? It couldn't possibly mean anything. It's an impossibility, isn't it, to actually carry out life like that. It doesn't work. There's really only one thing that works. Christ is everything. Amen. He's everything. He has to be. And you don't have a right to love anything else, and I don't have a right to love anything else unless it's a means of loving him. Let me state that again, because we know God has said, love your wife, right? So the only way to put that together is, say, is to say this. There's only one way to do it, and that is that you can only 
love something else if it is a means of loving him. He is the sole one we devote ourselves to. It is an absolute devotion to Jesus Christ if we are to be a disciple of Christ. And if he permits something in our lives that we can enjoy and love and appreciate, and it can be a gift of worship to him that we do this thing uh, and we can aim it toward him, then we have a wonderful privilege and a joy that that we get to do that thing. And he does many things like that, really, in our lives. But he's got to be number one. And if he comes calling for that thing that you love or that thing you like to do or the thing that you own or that bank account that you have or whatever it is, he comes calling for that, well, he's number one. He's number one. He has the right over everything in your lives. Nobody can be my disciple, he said, unless he hates like that and loves like that. Secondly, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For, he illustrates it like this, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Hmm. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Obviously, we know, we already know, that the cross was a Roman means of execution, and it was an ugly thing. So a very, it's a very severe way to, to, to punish people, right, and to kill people who are criminals. And so um, immediately in people's minds, everybody knew what the cross was, the Roman cross was when Jesus Christ said this. It wasn't a Jewish way. It was a Roman way. It was so, it was so awful and harsh. Everybody knew what it was. Maybe they'd seen people hanging on a cross. And so, what is Jesus saying? Everyone, whoever does not carry his own cross, so it would mean something like this. Whoever does not pick up his own cross and bear it cannot be my disciple. The cross would mean then, whatever you might experience in terms of pain and struggle and disapproval and and, uh, you know, just uncomfortableness and persecution, whatever you might have to bear all the way up to the place of death must be what you pick up. One of the, one of the, one of the gospels says daily. <laughs> what you pick up every day and you bear for Jesus. Uh, he is, you know, in Romans 6, you're teaching through Romans, or I think I heard you say, and I am too, actually. And in Romans 6, we have the use of our identification with the death of Jesus Christ. That's a completely different thing. This is different here. Here he's just talking about the real physical thing of committing yourself to whatever the cost is in terms of difficulty and struggle 
and agony and death, whatever it might be, you pick that up and you carry that for Jesus. You carry that in your following of Jesus Christ. That's the commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Right? It is not for sissies. It's for people who are willing to go all the way. And how important that is in our day when we feel like maybe more than we've ever felt that we might suffer persecution as Christians. And more people are being persecuted as Christians in the world today than ever before. This is essential language and experience of a true Christian. You have to be willing from the outset to take whatever it is that might come your way. Every day, taking that up and carrying your death, your actual physical price that you might pay, your time and your money and your effort, whatever it is you have to pay, whatever you must do to follow Jesus, you must give it. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, are we saying that to people? <laughs> are we telling people what, what the cost really is here? He says, if you, other, otherwise you'd be like the person who sets out to build a building and he doesn't, doesn't calculate the cost. He doesn't start out by knowing and figuring out what is the cost of my building a building. He's saying, what is, you, you need to think about it. What is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are we saying that to people? What will it cost you to be a Christian? Otherwise, people will ridicule you. And people, friends, I have to tell you, do ridicule Christianity and Christians, supposed Christians, who do not count the cost, pay the price. I think we all know the name of the, the missionary in the 1800s named Patton. Patton went to the Hebrides Islands and... Uh, he was a great soul, and the book on his life is really one of the best missionary biographies you could possibly read. He was going to people who ate people. You know, he's going to cannibals. And when he, when he said, I'm going to the Hebrides Islands, some people said, you can't go there. They'll eat you. <laughs> and I can't remember the wording perfectly, but he said, it doesn't make any difference. You know, he said, you're gonna, they said, you're going to die. He said, I've died already. I've died already. Yes. I counted the, what is he saying? I've counted the cost of this. And he said, it doesn't really make any difference whether I get eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. I'm going to be raised as fair as you in the resurrection. Amen. <laughs> he counted the cost, you see. And that's what every person must do. And I know we're afraid to do this and tell people this. There are benefits to being a Christian. My goodness, eternal benefits. But it's not without the price of everything you are physically. I mean, being laid on the altar before the Lord. You are saying, I am yours, Lord. You do with me whatever's necessary for me to be obedient to you in serving you, it will be costly and I will stay up late and I will give my money away when it seems like I don't have any and I'll give my time away and I'll serve the lowest of people if I need to, whoever it is, I will do whatever I need to do, Lord. 
give me your grace. Give me, you've given me your spirit. I'll have the ability by what you've given me, bequeathed to me by your Holy Spirit. But I want to be that kind of person. I'm willing, best I can tell, to be that kind of person. That'll be tested off and wanted in your life as a Christian. But we start right there to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? Hmm? It's a narrow way, isn't it? The broad way in the Sermon on the Mount is the broad religious way, by the way. It's not just the way of the world. It's the broad religious way. You see the contrast in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the narrow way that we follow. And then he says this. In the next, in the next one of these um, statements that he makes, he gives an illustration first. And look at, look at it in verse 31. All right? Let's look at your text. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king, and that other king in this story is God, right? What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether it, he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his possessions. Well, what sense does that make? What does that illustration have to do with the terms of discipleship? Well, let me try to explain it. It's found in this little phrase, terms of peace. In the early days, uh, when Israel had... Uh, had gotten out of Egypt and they'd come through the wilderness and they came to the land of Canaan. They were told that when they fought a battle, they were to actually send a delegation and ask for, ask for terms of peace to be considered. Okay? Now, terms of peace would mean for that city that they were about to conquer that those people would have to completely surrender everything they had and become the slaves of the Israelites. If they don't do that, God said, destroy them. Right? Destroy the Canaanites. You remember that story? Do you remember that? It's a, it's a very interesting passage in the Bible. Very clear term, terms of peace, very clear uh, phrase, terms of peace. So in this case, he's kind of reversing this around and said, what if somebody came to you? What if somebody much stronger than you came to you and you had 10,000 men and he has 20,000 men? Let, let me tell you, by the way, the disparity is much greater between you and God than that. But he's just giving an illustration here. What would you do even in that case, 10,000 to 20,000? What would you do? Well, if you've got any sense at all, you know you're going to get whipped, right? And you will send a delegation yourself, and you will beg for terms of peace, which means you will give up everything you have and become a servant of these people who are about to conquer you otherwise and destroy you. Does that make sense? That happened in the Bible. It happened with the Gibeonites. You remember that story? It's quite a story. They became servants of the Israelites because they settled on terms of peace. There was a little deception involved in that story, and I won't go into the details. But it's, uh, it's very definitely an illustration of that very thing. So then he says, you can't be, nobody can be my disciple unless he gives up all his own possessions. 
That's, this is where it really gets tough, right? Give up all your possessions? You mean my 401k and my, you know, my, just my cars and my house and, and all of these things, the heirlooms I have that I've inherited from my family, there's the, all of this, all of this that I have, I have to give up that in order to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, yes, yes, you, you have to give up the ownership of that and give it over to Jesus. Now, he might still let you live in the city. He might still let you live in the home, but it's not your home. It's not your home anymore. It's not your money. It's not your bank account. It's not your stocks and bonds. It belongs to him. And you're not his disciple unless it belongs to him. You say, wait a minute, I just, I just wanted to be a little religious. I didn't really want to be, go this far with all of this. But this is, you see, this is the reason... Uh, again, Jesus is popular, and, and, and we make him so popular, right, by the things that we say, or by failing to say such things as this sometimes, I think, that we're not really helping people count the cost. This is the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it cost us. Now, then we come to the end. And there are two verses here at the end that seem to make no sense at all. Let's just kind of talk about those for a minute and we'll conclude. Jesus said, therefore, salt is good. Now, I, when I first read this, I just scratched my head and said, Jesus, we've been talking about, you know, these weighty things. And now you want to talk about salt. You know, what, what's going on here? What's really happening here? Salt is good. Well, okay, salt is good. I think so. I use salt. Salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can I read that again? Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, as far as I can tell, and I'm not a chemist, but... Some of you know this science better than I do, but salt is a very simple compound. Am I right? Very simple. And if that compound makes, then you've got salt, and you, it's just salt is always going to come from that compound, right? That, when that's put together like that, it's salt. There's really not such a thing as salt that's not salty. Really? I mean, those, two, those compounds, what, what, are, what is it? Somebody tell me what it is. I'm forgetting right now. Sodium chloride, right. You put it together, it's salt. I think Jesus knew that. <laughs> I think he knew that. Put together, it's salt. But let's say salt becomes tasteless and it doesn't have the salt feature. 
it's good for nothing. You know why? It's not salt. <laughs> right? It's not salt. It purports to be salt, but it's not salt. That's really what he's saying here. He's saying there are people who will not be my disciple. They will profess to be my disciple. But there, it can't be. Because my disciple, my disciple meets these terms of discipleship, commits to these terms of discipleship. And if a person is professing to be something, they are not, they are good for nothing, not even, not good for the dirt. You know, they used to put salt on the fields of enemies to destroy their fields, right? And it's not even good for manure piles. And you might wonder, well, what does salt have to do with manure? And it had a lot to do in that day, and still in our day in some places, uh, where people would um, dry out manure, make bricks out of it, and burn it for fire, okay? And if you put salt into it, you have a hotter fire. It burns a lot warmer uh, than without salt. But it's not even, if, if it's not really salt, it only professes to be salt, it's not even good for manure. Have you ever thought about that concerning your own life? That you are not even good for manure by professing to know Jesus but not really committing to the terms of discipleship? You see, you're, your life means nothing as far as the kingdom is concerned. You're a backdrop to what God is doing. I, one day I was sitting in the library and I was looking, I was in the biography section and I, I looked over across and I saw the biography, very thick biography of Lucille Ball. I used to think Lucille Ball was so funny. She, she is hilarious to me, Lucille Ball. Great comedian. But she was a God hater. She was, she was not a, even close to being a believer and very open about her not unbelief. Did you know that as popular as she was, she was just not worth anything as far as the kingdom is concerned. It's worth nothing. The most meek person in this room has far more value to God than Lucille Ball did with all of her popularity. Right? And so if you have ears to hear, you better hear what God says here. Now, this is a message that I, I believe is good for people like you and me then who profess to be Christians. Did you sort of miss the contract? I mean, just kind of got in some other way? <laughs> I mean, do you feel that you are a Christian without meeting these terms of discipleship? It can't be so. He says you cannot, I cannot, I cannot be a disciple. Unless my devotion to Jesus makes every other love look like hate, I settle, I settle that affection issue, I settle the pain and death issue, I settle the money and finances, possessions issue in my life. I have to settle those issues as I come to follow Jesus Christ. Everything, everything goes to God. And you know something? Uh, when God lets you see who Jesus is, you'll be happy to do it. It'll be a great trade. <laughs> 
the rich young man, he didn't get it. But if you get it, you'd see it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Like the man who'd buy a treasure in a, buy a field and discover he has a treasure in the, I mean, consider a field, and he finds a treasure in it. What does he do? He goes out, the Bible says, Jesus said he goes out gladly, and he sells everything that he has, and he comes and he buys the field out of joy. You see, he'll be willing to give everything for such an immense treasure as Jesus Christ. So don't miss that part either, right? It's worth it to meet the terms of discipleship. You got the picture? So where do you stand? Are you a disciple of Christ? Let's be honest. Let's bow our heads and, and pray about that for a moment. Please close your eyes. Hmm. Are you hearing what the Lord says? Do you hear it? Does Jesus mean what he says? Are you being honest?